This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by On. On is taking the running scene by storm as the fastest growing running brand in the world based around the radical idea of zero gravity running. On's clean and minimalistic design, as well as its sole technology, gives you the sensation of running on clouds. Try on a pair of Ons for yourself for 30 days and put them to the test. That means actually running in them before you decide to keep. To get this offer, go to on-running.com slash manliness. That's on-running.com dot com slash manliness try on a pair of ons for 30 days and test them out yourself Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. On El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, there was a wall that had never been climbed and some said would never be climbed. It's called the Dawn Wall. But in 2015, Tommy Caldwell, along with Kevin Jorgensen, became the first to free climb it. Today, I speak to Tommy about what led up to that historic climb, starting from how he got involved in rock climbing in his childhood. We begin our conversation discussing the different types of rock climbing and why people often misinterpret what free climbing means. We then dig into Tommy's climbing career, including his early success in sport climbing, and the harrowing experience of being held hostage by and escaping from rebels in Kyrgyzstan. We then discuss how Tommy responded to losing a finger, those are important when you're a rock climber, and also getting a divorce shortly thereafter, and why he decided to climb the Dawn Wall. We end our conversation discussing the years-long process of preparing for the climb and the virtue of what Tommy calls elective suffering. There are a lot of little potent lessons here on how to remain persistent and driven in the face of setbacks that apply beyond rock climbing every aspect of life. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash dawnwall. Tommy Caldwell, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. So you were one of the first ever, along with Kevin Jorgensen, to free climb the Dawn Wall of El Capitan. And we'll talk about what it means to free climb because this is something I learned about rock climbing, reading your book. There's all types of different types of climbing. Before we get to that moment where you did this, let's talk about your backstory. When did you get started with rock climbing? And when did you figure out like this was going to be your thing like for the rest of your life? Yeah. So, I mean, rock climbing was a family trade. My dad was a mountain guide. I was out roped climbing from age three. So when I was young, it was just kind of like what we did. I was into it, but I wasn't hugely passionate about it. I didn't know that it was going to be like a thing that directed my life in any ways until I was a teenager. And because, and I think part of the reason for that was there was no other young climbers when I was young. I was like the only one. But when I was a teenager, climbing gyms were starting to come around. There was a competition series that started up. And so I suddenly had a community of friends through climbing and it was uh, it was something that I was already kind of good at since I'd been doing since doing it since I was three years old. So you mentioned your father. He's been rock climbing back in the seventies and eighties, and I thought this was interesting because in the seventies and eighties, like I you know that wasn't rock climbing really wasn't a thing except for like you know sort of fringe folk. What was the sport like back then when your dad was getting started in it? I mean, if you if you're into the history of climbing, it was certainly a thing. Like there was big, incredible climbs being done and sort of all the techniques were being pioneered. And so he was kind of in with the forefront of that, like realizing that the biggest walls in the world could actually be climbed. But you're right. It was very fringe. It was, you know, it was in a, in a, in an era where most people didn't want to do risky things just in general. So rock climbers were kind of out there. And so my dad took it up. He loved it. He did it until until my sister was born. But back then it was way more dangerous than it is now. The, you know, just the protection systems weren't, weren't what they are now. And so when my sister was born, he actually quit. He took up bodybuilding instead. 
for a handful of years until climbing got safer again with the invention of sport climbing. Well, yeah, you, I thought that was really interesting. It seemed like back then when I was first getting started, there was like this sort of really very risk-taking ethos. There was like a concern about how you rock climbed, not necessarily if you made it to the top, but if you did it in a certain way, right? Yeah. I mean, climbers were rebels for sure back then. They were countercultural. They were, they were kind of shutting mainstream society. And so in a world that told them not to take risks, they wanted to take as much risk as possible. And so you, you mentioned, like, so that sort of started changing with the invention of sport climbing. So t- walk us through this for people who aren't familiar with the different types of rock climbing, because I, I kind of got confused. Uh, you know, I found myself getting confused, having to go back. So like there's sport climbing. So like, what is sport climbing? How is that different from other types of climbing? And like, what type of climbing do you do? Right. Uh, so there's traditional rock climbing, which, you know, back in the fifties meant that you took, took little bits of metal and you hammered them into cracks, much the way a carpenter would pound in a nail and you attached carabiners. Carabiners were invented back then to these bits of metal and then you climbed up. And so the evolution of that is what we now call traditional climbing, which these days essentially means you're, you're mostly placing your own protection in the natural features of the rock. And one of the reasons it was, it was so dangerous back then is because it really was just like stuff that you'd go to the hardware or go to the like junkyard and scavenge and pound them into cracks. So it wasn't, it was hard to test it. It wasn't all that solid. Nowadays we have all, you know, a whole quiver of really fancy, highly tested um, tools that we can use to make it a lot safer. But anyways, placing your own gear is traditional rock climbing. Sport climbing is where the first ascensionist comes along and drills a line of bolts up the route that stay there permanently. So what this allows is for falling to be really an option. Like you can kind of fall whenever you want on most sport climbs and you'll just sort of slowly come to a gentle stop at the end of the, of the end of your rope as your, as your belayer is belaying you. And so it allows you to push the difficulty standards really hard. That's yeah, that's sort of the simplistic difference of those two aspects of the sport. Okay. And then like, what's like free climbing? Yeah, so free climbing is a terrible term. First of all, we need <laughs> right. <laughs> we need to just get the word free out of the whole scene, but I don't think that's going to happen. But what free climbing means is essentially you are climbing the surface of the rock, you know, grabbing the little edges, twisting your feet in the cracks, and that's how you make forward progress. But you do have the ropes and the equipment there to catch you in case you fall. And it di- and so free climbing is different from aid climbing where when you're aid climbing, you pound those bits of metal into the rock or you, you know, these days you use cams or nuts or all the fancy tools. And then you attach basically a series of, of leg loops or a little ladder, a nylon ladder to those pieces of gear and you climb the ladder. So you're not really climbing the surface of the rock. You're just, you're just using this very mechanical method to ascend the wall. And the reason it's confusing is because most people think when they hear free, they think no rope, you fall, you die. So that's free soloing. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's what confused like the difference between free climbing and free soloing. Because I when I yeah, when I hear free, I'm thinking, oh, there's no ropes at all. But there are ropes. You're kind of attaching yourself as you make progress up the wall, correct? Yeah, and free climbing you are. Although free soloing is a form of free climbing, but you just don't have the ropes when you're free soloing. Okay. So uh you started doing sort of traditional rock climbing with your dad when he was doing it. In high school, you got into sport climbing, correct? Yeah, I got into sport climbing and then pretty quickly into competition climbing because it was it was really the like the gymnastic form of climbing. It's like, you know, gymnastics is 
you know, little, little body types, you know, kind of scrawny, strong people are really good at sport climbing. That's kind of what I was big adventure climbers or more traditional climbers have to have a lot of experience to do it safely. And, you know, when I was, when I was a teenager, I just didn't have tons of experience. All right. So competition climbing, this is another twist here. So like competition climbing, like what does that look like? Yeah. So competition climbing is essentially sport climbing on an artificially built wall where they can control all the elements. They, they can make the route harder and harder as you go higher. And so the way that the scoring works is usually the, the person who makes it the highest is the winner. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And there's also bouldering, okay, by right. the way. Um, so bouldering is just on small rocks where you're not high enough generally to hurt yourself all that badly when you fall. So you don't use ropes, but you just land on the ground. And there's also bouldering competitions. So you were doing this all throughout high school. After high school, what was life like for you? Did you decide to throw yourself deeper into rock climbing at this point? Yeah. You know, I wasn't a, a very good student, I would say. And as I progressed through middle school and high school, I found myself going on all these amazing trips at first with my dad. But then at some point in high school, I started going on them alone and I was seeing the world and I was meeting really cool people. And, and I was learning a lot. Like the classroom was never a great environment for me to learn, but traveling the world was a really great environment. And so I got totally addicted to it still within high school. Like I graduated early from my senior year of high school and went to France for a month. And I also would go on, you know, big climbing trips, like every summer vacation. And so by the time it was, it was time to go to college. I, I felt like I had found something better that suited me better, you know, like the idea of going to college and which would make it. So I had to stop traveling. I, I had a lot of dread when I, when I had that thought. <laughs> it, it, what did your mom think about this? I mean, I imagine your dad really encouraged this, this passion of yours, but like, were your, was your mom kind of like, yeah, I don't know about that. Was she like a typical mom? Well, it was interesting. My father was an educator. He's a middle school teacher. And so he kind of had, he could see it from both directions. Like he thought school was very important, but I think both my mother and my father could look at me and see that, you know, I had a chance to do well at this sport of climbing. And they also kind of admired the, the hand to mouth existence that rock climbing, the full-time rock climbing was, they thought that was good for you to go through. It's almost like going on a pilgrimage or something like, so for several years I lived on like $50 a month (laughs) and traveled around and climbed. And you learn a lot about the world when you do that. And so they were in support of that. They wanted me to live an impoverished lifestyle for a while. And they, I don't think they ever dreamed that it it would have turned into what it is now. I thought they, they figured I'd go and travel around the world and climb for a few years and then go back to college. But I never ended up doing that. That, that didn't happen. Well, you also talk about after college, you, know, you did a lot of traveling. One of the places you went was France, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I go to France almost every year still. So from the time I was in, you know, just out of high school, or even before I graduated from, from high school until now, I go to France you know, quite often. So what's going on there in, in the rock climbing world in France? So when I was younger, it was all about sport climbing. France was the center of the world for sport climbers and the best physically strongest climbers were we're in France and therefore the, the, the way that the rock forms in France is these big overhanging limestone caves. And that's an incredibly gymnastic, fun way to climb. And if you want to become a good climber, it's best to spend a lot of years building those kinds of strengths. So yeah, that's, that's the reason I went to France now. And that's still the reason I go to France or back then. And it's still the reason I go to France now is to kind of, it's like training. Well, another thing you did uh, experimented with while you were traveling Europe and traveling the world after college was alpine. This is another type of climbing here. Alpine, or is that, was it, was that, is that what you call alpinist, alpining? 
Yeah, alpine climbing is basically climbing and on big mountains and you know snowy environments. Okay, so that's when you you probably see the guys with like the giant axe, the pickaxe thing. Yeah, I mean, generally, I mean, it it can encompass a lot of things um, depending on sort of the style of alpine climbing you want to do. Like, I generally stay away from the snow, although I, I, I do. I well, I say that with a bit of hesitation. Sometimes dealing with snow and ice climbing is just a must to get to a lot of, to the tops of a lot of the mountains that I want to climb. But generally, I try and climb the the sheer big rock walls, which means I usually have an ice axe with me, but I'm not using it that much of the time. All right. So in college, you're, you're making a living rock climbing. How do rock climbers make money? Like, are there, do they, do you win money at competitions? Is it sponsorships? Wow. What, what, how does that work? Yeah. In my college years, that's how it started. I would, since I had been climbing since age three, I could make a little bit of money at competitions. But like I said, that amounted to on average $50 a month. Like I'd usually spend most of my competition winnings going to the next competition. And I was like good at that, but I wasn't that good at that. There was, there was another gentleman, another friend of mine named Chris Sharma, who basically would win every competition he entered back then. So he made a better living than I did. But pretty soon I started to acquire a little bit of sponsorship. One of my first sponsors, 510, you know, the, the, the sponsorship manager had come from, I think the tennis world and she'd seen sponsorship of really young people go kind of badly oftentimes. And so she was really concerned about making sure that I stayed humble. And, but it really, it was, it was just like, at first it was just like getting three pairs of free shoes a year. And then it's just sort of gotten better and better since then as the sports grown. And yeah, now there's like legitimate climbing celebrities, which really <laughs> didn't, didn't exist before. So uh, you've been traveling the world after high school. In 2000, you decided to go climbing in Kyrgyzstan. What, what was going on in Kyrgyzstan that made it an attractive place to happen? And then what happened to you while you were there? By the time I was like 19 and 20, I was, I was starting sort of to transition out of sport climbing and get into big wall free climbing. So climbing really big walls, you know, tra- traditional climbing, which is way more adventurous. And my favorite place to do that was Yosemite. But you always dream about a place more exotic because Yosemite has some of the best big walls in the world. But, you know, it's right in the middle of Yosemite National Park in California. But there was this place in Kyrgyzstan that had rock and walls similar to Yosemite. And it also had good weather because there is big walls all over the world, but some of them are like in Pakistan at their, their really high elevations or in Baffin Island. And, you know, you got to go across fjords and just deal with a lot more. Kyrgyzstan had great weather and big walls. And it was, and it was a place that people had been going for probably a decade, but there was still a lot of first ascents to be done. There was tons of terrain to explore. So that's kind of what drew us there. But really, it drew the other members of the team there. I was just like the tag-along boyfriend. My, my, my girlfriend at the time, Beth Rodden, was sponsored by the North Face. And she got an opportunity to go on this trip. And then she kind of convinced the North Face to invite me along as a rigger for, for ropes. So I could put up ropes so the photographers could kind of get around and take photos to advertise the North Face equipment. But then while you were there, you were climbing. You guys got help, became hostages of some rebels in the area. What, what, was there a war going on? What was happening there? Yeah, I mean, it, it turned into a war that year. We were, we're, we're climbing our first wall of the trip. So we're climbing this like 2,000 foot wall called the Yellow Wall. And these walls are big enough that they take multiple days. So we're sleeping in our porta ledges, which are like our hanging cl- cots, 1,000 feet up the wall this one morning when 
a rebel insurgency called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan moved into the valley. And the political situation is, is a bit complicated, but you know, in some ways it boils down to opium, opium trade. And then sometimes they try and traffic the drugs over these remote high mountain va- valleys because there's, there's, there's not much in the way of border patrol <laughs> back there. And, and that part of Kyrgyzstan is, is there's borders everywhere, like the borders of Uzbekistan and Tajikistan were both within like 30 miles of us. And so it just so happened that they came through this valley that we were climbing in and they saw us up on the wall and they came to the base of the wall with their long range assault rifle at first, you know, kind of at dawn and they started shooting up at us and, you know, they're pretty good shots. They were able to get bullets right between our two portalages, which were about four feet apart. So we knew we had to come down. And then how long were you held hostage for? Six very life-changing days. It, the whole situation elevated drastically. Like once we got down, we were taken hostage. And then just a few hours later, the Kyrgyz military moved in the valley and a full-on war broke out around us. Yeah, it was, it was in, intense in a way that I couldn't even comprehend before, before going on that trip. And, and how did you all escape? The, the short answer is we ended up pushing our one remaining captor off a cliff and running to a Kyrgyz military outpost, which was about six or eight miles down the valley. But obviously a lot of, you know, a lot led up to that over six days. We, we, uh, we, you know, we were starving. When, when the Kyrgyz military showed up, we had to abandon all of our food and warm clothing and uh, run as captors of the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan and hide for those six days. And we progressively got weaker. And, you know, we were, uh, we were, pretty close to succumbing to hypothermia. And so it got quite desperate. And yeah, so, but our, our captors were almost worse off than we were in a way because they had to uh, abandon all their food and warm clothing and we were climbers and this was really steep terrain. So we were kind of comfortable on the terrain in a way that they weren't. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Sometimes one change can make all the difference. Hair Club knows this. That's why they're inviting you to become part of the Hair Club to see how getting the most out of your hair can change your life. Hair Club is a leader in total hair solutions with a legacy of success for over 40 years. Whether you're looking to revitalize the growth of your own hair or learn more about the latest proven methods for hair replacement restoration, Hair Club's professionally trained stylists, hair health experts, and consultants will craft a personalized solution to ensure you feel your best and get the most out of your hair. See for yourself just how powerful great hair can be. Go to hairclub.com manly today and you get a free hair analysis and a free take-home hair care kit. It's all valued over $300. But to get that offer, you got to go to my special domain, hairclub.com slash manly. One more time, hairclub.com slash manly for a free hair analysis and a free hair care kit. Also buy Saks underwear. It's time we treat ourselves to higher quality underwear. Underwear that feels good, provides support, and leaves us feeling fresh. That's what Saks underwear is all about. It's the only men's underwear specifically designed with their anatomy in mind. First, it starts with the ballpark pouch. It's a game changer. It's got these internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place and separate, so no more chafing. It's fantastic. The fabric they use is moisture wicking, super soft, and it even repels BO. My favorite underwear from Saks is the Kinetic Boxer Brief. Ballpark pouch is awesome, especially in those hot, humid summer Oklahoma days that are coming up quickly starting to warm up around here and it's got a sort of compression short like which i like when i'm doing squats if you want to try sax underwear got an offer for you you can get five dollars off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use promo code aom at checkout so order a few pairs of sacks for you know, try them out you get five dollars off plus free shipping by going to saxxunderwear.com that's sacks with two x's and use promo code aom at checkout to get five dollars off plus free shipping one more time saxunderwear.com promo code aom and now back to the show 
And, and I mean, how did this change your climbing career? This is this like really traumatic experience. I mean, it changed it in a lot of ways. Like I said, going on into the trip, I wasn't a well-known climber. I was kind of just like the tag alone, long boyfriend. We got back from Kyrgyzstan and then Beth, you know, my girlfriend at the time, we, uh, we bonded very heavily. And we also were trying to find a way to kind of cope with the trauma of what we had been through. So we, we climbed together and we were fueled. And I would say me more than her possibly by this sort of like deeper, darker, almost stronger force. Like climbing had been my kind of my safe place. It had been what had brought me joy for my entire life. And so when I was in a place where I was feeling all mixed up in the world, that's where I returned or I went to El Cap. But sensations like fear and pain had been totally reset. And I pretty quickly realized that if I can go big wall climbing and not really have to worry as much about fear and pain, I do way better. And so it went from this kind of devastation to empowerment to sort of curiosity about the limits of, of my chosen passion, which was, which was big wall climbing. And so it really jumpstarted this, 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 I guess, I, I don't know, I don't, a career doesn't seem like the right word, but jumpstarted what my life is today. Well, then what happened a few years later, you, this was devastating. You, you accidentally sawed off your index finger because you were, guys were building a house together. Yeah, that was, that was only like a year or less than a year after Kyrgyzstan. Yeah. And fingers are really important for a rock climber. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was at a time in my life when I, you know, the only, the only real future that I knew was, was rock climbing. And I was starting to make a living at it. I was like, this, this is something that I could actually kind of support a lifestyle doing. And then I'd sawed off a finger and just in a home remodeling accident, I was using a table saw and not that experience with using a table saw and ended up chopping it off. And yeah, like you said, most, I, I think everybody in my community, except for maybe Beth and maybe my father were like, he's done. Like <laughs> climbing is so much about finger strength. And if you lose a finger, it's over. But uh, I had this pretty pivotal moment in the hospital. I was in the hospital for two, two weeks. I went through three surgeries and it, they just didn't work. Like in the end, the doctor came in and he sat down next to me and he said, Tommy, you know, we've tried everything we can. Your finger, your finger is essentially dead. We're going to have to remove it permanently. And you should start thinking out about what else you want to do in your life. Cause you're not going to be able to be a professional climber anymore. The do- doctor was actually a climber himself. And then he stood up and left. And, and I remember Beth looking at me and just being like, he has no idea what he's talking about. And that was really, that was really the right thing. And so I don't know, I don't know if it's just inherently built in to me, but when I have these big challenges or these big setbacks, they just, they turn into fuel. And so Kyrgyzstan was that, but my finger in a way was that too. You know, I, I wanted to prove the doctor wrong in a way. I wanted to prove to myself that I still had it. And so I got way more scientific and serious about the ways that I climbed and almost even more so than Kyrgyzstan. It was the biggest sort of leap in, in sort of how good I became as a climber. And did it take you a long time to get back on the wall? Like, was just like a few weeks after the, the, the last surgery or did it take a little bit longer? I mean, I was climbing within a week of the last surgery, wow. but not well. Right. But I, I think I, I had very low expectations, but so it was really easy to, to exceed those expectations. So my first day climbing, I was like, oh, I'm actually kind of climbing okay. And then, you know, a month later I was, you know, getting kind of close to being able to sport climb on as hard of routes as I had with all 10 fingers. And then six months later, I was doing things that were harder than I had ever done. 
yeah, it was a pretty powerful time in life. And then a few years later, you had another setback. You, you know, you married Beth in that time, but then your your marriage ended. Um, did that affect your climbing? Did you kind of go into a funk, or was it a, one of those moments again where that became sort of fuel for your climbing? Well, I mean, at first, I certainly went to an into a funk, and all these setbacks went through evolutions. But I think, yeah, I mean, essentially, we had bonded really, really heavily through through Kyrgyzstan, and I think Beth needed to escape that that very deep bonding. And so she left me in a way that pretty, pretty heavily devastated me. But like I had learned through a lifetime of kind of encountering these setbacks, I just, it just made me double down. It made me look at, at the things that I sort of appreciate and enjoyed the most in the world. And really the main thing that did it is it started, it started, it made me try and find like the next big, huge thing that would cause that would necessitate that that I would have to change as a person to do like a climb that I would have to become so much better and change as a person to do because I wanted to get lost in that process and so that that's that was the emphasis of the Don Wall. The Don Wall. So tell us about the Don Wall. Why hadn't this part of the the mountain never been climbed before? So El El Capitan for a lot of years was only climbed by aid. And then in the 70s, a few people figured out ways to climb that climate free to be able to free climate. And so then when I started getting into climbing on on Cap, that's what I was doing is I was free climbing all the existing routes. But all the routes at that time went up these pretty obvious crack systems, like to a trained climber's eye, you could look from afar and imagine that those walls could be climbed. But there was this one aspect that just looked sheer and blank and it didn't look like there was really anything in the way of crack systems and since i'd spent so much time on the wall probably more than anybody at that time i I was maybe the one person that knew that on this rock that from afar looks totally blank sometimes edges form and if you train yourself just right you can start to learn to climb from one to the next and so it just became this this giant puzzle i actually spent almost a year swinging around and trying to piece together this huge puzzle and, and build the belief that it was possible. So it took you a year to like of that sort of investigation and, and preparation before you actually started climbing or was it more than that? I mean, it was on and off for a year and I was climbing on it. You know, you kind of, I mean, the, the holds that you grab are, are so tiny. You know, a lot of them, you have to actually mark them with a little bit of chalk to even know that they're there. They're almost too small to see with the naked eye very easily. So I was mapping out the sequences and doing that by myself. I had kind of developed these rope soloing techniques to be able to go up there and you know try the individual moves. And I knew that if I could do all the individual moves, then the route was theoretically possible. And so after a year, I got to the point where I was able, I had found a path where I could do all the individual moves. But then piecing them together for 3,000 feet was, was r- the real daunting part. And, and how did you sync up with Kevin Jorgensen to do this? So I, I actually gave up on the route. Like I, I pieced it together. I was like, this, this is a route. Like somebody will climb this someday, but it's just, it's just ridiculously hard. It's so, it's so above and beyond anything I've done before that I'm never going to be able to do it. I've worked on film projects kind of throughout my career. And the main filmer that I worked with, Josh Lowell from Big Up Productions, called me and he, he, had, he kind of knew what I was seeking on the Don Wall. And he said, okay, well, if you've given up on it, um, we should make a film about this so we can put it out there to the next generation. Because he felt pretty strongly like this was the future. This would, be, this would be a big deal in the future. So I went up with a crew of four people and spent a week 
climbing on the individual sections, sleeping up on the wall with the crew and making this film to kind of show off the beauty and, and sort of the wonder of that route. And then they put out a video called Progression. Yeah, they do a tour called the Real Rock Tour. And it's always like the cutting edge stuff that's going on in climbing. And that video showed up in the Real Rock Tour one year. And Kevin saw the video. And at the end of that video, I kind of make this call out. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to do this, but I wanted to put it out there for the next generation. And Kevin was looking for something new. I think he, he heard that. And he's like, oh, I'm the next generation. So he called me up. And at first, I kind of wrote him off because I was like, he's Kevin. Kevin had never climbed anything like that. He was a boulder, which means you know he'd never he he rarely climbed more than about thirty feet off the ground. But since he was such a good boulder, he he could do the individual moves better than I could. And so I agreed to kind of go up there and see how it went with him. And first, I was just sort of mentoring him, but I saw you know he he inspired me to sort of join him back on the project, and that started the. I guess, six years partnership that it, that it took to actually get it done. Wow. And then, I mean, when you guys finally decided to make the ascent, like how long did it take to go up the, the wall? 19 days. And we tried several times. I think we tried three times to do ground up ascents because most of our time was just spent kind of aid climbing around on the wall and trying the individual moves and piecing it all together and figuring out how to live up on the side of a big wall and climb really hard for long periods of time. And then once we get all the moves sort of wired into our brain and and our memory then we would make these ground up attempts and we failed miserably twice and then our third time is the one that that worked we actually made it and it took 19 days and like what do you like, walks through the, like how do you feel whenever you you accomplish it like do you feel awesome and then like, like how long does that feeling last i mean it, the the feeling was all over the board i mean as we were climbing for those 19 days it was it was very dramatic because i had managed to get through the hardest section of the climb and I got to a point where I knew success was pretty much inevitable. Like I could climb to the top relatively easy, but Kevin was failing. And the way that you do these climbs is you break them up into rope lengths or what we call pitches. And there was 32 consecutive pitches. And so to constitute a successful ascent, you just have to climb each of those 32 pitches in a row. But if you fall, you can, you can return back to the beginning of that pitch. You don't have to go all the way to the ground. So about halfway up, Kevin started falling on one of the pitches and he cut his fingers quite badly. And you got to remember grabbing onto these little, little tiny razor sharp edges. So once you get little cuts in them, things tend to downward spiral. It was middle of winter. You know, we realized that to, to climb this route, we had to climb when the, when the temperatures were absolutely as cold as we could find because your skin's a little bit harder. The rubber on your shoes is a little bit harder. You don't sweat at all. So we ended up climbing it in the middle of winter. But the problem is, is these big storms, can roll in. So when Kevin was failing, we were, you know, it felt, it felt quite urgent, I guess, because we're like, if a storm rolls in, ice fall comes down the route and we have to basically run away and we'll fail again. So yeah, it just turned into this dramatic thing. And then the news caught hold of it and it went big in the New York times. And there was like all these news trucks in the valley and it was just very, very surreal thing. And so I think I kind of knew that success for me personally could happen if I decided not to wait for Kevin like a week before we topped out. But luckily I did wait for Kevin and sort of the glory moment was on the last day we were camped a few hundred feet from the top. It was just me and Kevin. And then our one film filmer friend, Brett Lowell, Josh's brother. And we were just sitting there when the sun came up and, you know, we knew that we were going to make to the top and it just felt 
incredible because it wasn't distracted. When we got to the top, it was, you know, it was just kind of a circus. There was like 50 reporters there and I just wanted to hang out with my wife and my kids. And yeah, and my life became very different very quickly after that. And so what have you done after that point? I mean, I've spent the last four years now, I guess it's been just over four years since we climbed the Don Wall. I guess living this new life. I wrote a, I wrote a book, the movie, The Dawn Wall came out not so long ago. It's like available on iTunes now. So taking all that video footage and putting it together into a, into a proper movie took three years. And I've been doing other climbing trips as well in that, in that time. But I would say I spent a lot more time kind of at the office, working on the computer, doing interviews, doing film festivals, doing book events. You know, I travel. So one thing I love from your book is you talk about this, this idea of elective suffering. What do you mean by that? And why do you think choosing, why do you think people should elect to suffer? Um, I mean, I think that most people can relate to that because things that are valuable don't, don't come easy. And so if you find a way to find joy in the midst of suffering, that's a good thing. But I guess, I guess elective suffering really speaks to creating hardship on purpose because you know it's going to change you as a human being. And I feel like my story in its essence is about unintended hardship, but really since I figured out a way, I kind of got addicted to hardship in a way. So it became elective suffering. Like climbing the Don Wall was incredibly hard work and it put us through a lot. And so therefore it created this life that was elevated, or at least I felt that way. And so, yeah, I'm still eclectic addicted to that. Like everybody's got these big dreams or these big goals. And, and usually what keeps them from doing that is the suffering component. You know, it's just too much work in the end. But if you can find a way to enjoy that process, to really truly enjoy that process, that's, that's kind of the elective suffering. So there are any like unclimbed walls still out there in the world that you have your eye on or have they all been climbed? There are lots of really, really amazing big walls. Most of them are in remote locations that require big expedition travel to go to. Like this place that I've always wanted to go, I haven't made it there yet, Baffin Island. You know, Baffin Island is like a hundred Yosemites, but there's, you know, you got to deal with the Arctic environment and polar bears and ice breakup because a lot of them are kind of right on the ocean. There's, you know, they're just, they're just remote, remote and therefore, you know, more dangerous than I guess I'm willing to accept right now because I'm a father. Like I wanted to, like I always aspired to go more and more into that big adventure travel world, but I started noticing that all my friends that were doing that were dying. And so for me, that just doesn't feel like an option. So I keep finding myself going back to Yosemite because Yosemite has these big, really inspiring roots, but the rock is so good and I'm experienced enough that I don't feel like it's that dangerous. So it fulfills this need to sort of explore and these big, incredible objectives are available in Yosemite. It's not new walls per se, but it's new roots on these walls. And so I find myself, you know, continually going back there every year and finding new big roots in Yosemite. Well, Tommy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about what you do? I mean, they can pick up my book, The Push, you know, on it's at most local bookstores, but also Amazon is a good way for it to get that. Or um, you can see the Don Wall movie, which won audience choice at the Sun or at the South by Southwest Film Festival. It's been it's gone pretty big. Um, the movie it's a really good, like hundred 
100 minute snapshot of of my entire life and yeah people absolutely love it so you can you can get that on itunes or and i think i think in a couple of weeks it's going to be on netflix as well fantastic well tommy caldwell thanks so much for your time it's been a pleasure all right thank you so much my guest today was Tommy Caldwell. He's the first person to free climb the Don Wall on Yosemite's El Capitan. And he's written about that experience in his book, The Push, A Climber's Search for the Path. There's also a documentary about it. And you can also find out more information about his work at his website, tommycaldwell.com. Also check out our show notes, aom.is slash Don Wall, where you can find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIM podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles rewritten over the years about how to be a better husband, better father, better all-around man. Also, if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Thank you.